0: Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Aiello from the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We have a special bonus for you today. We've got a long interview coming up on episode 17 on a Desert Storm MIG kill with Nick Mongillo. So in order to save some time on that episode, we are going to cover listener questions here in this bonus segment. This is taken from a June 5th Facebook Live session with episode 5 guest United States Navy Captain... Fitz Dud Lee, who's now retired. Anyway, this is that actual replay without any editing at all. So if you did view that either live or on Facebook or on YouTube, then you won't hear anything new here. And we will return to normal scheduling on episode 17. And then on 18, we might have some listener questions at that time, depending on how long that interview goes. So anyway, here is an hour of listener questions with Fitz Lee, callsign Dud. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We're doing a live question and answer segment today. Put that on mute. And here joining us is Episode 5 Hero, retired U.S. Navy Captain Fitz Lee, call sign Dud.
1: Glad to be here, Joe. Thanks. Great.
0: Well, welcome. I hope everybody can hear us. We're going to try not to hold our microphones. That looked a little awkward last time.
1: All right. So So
0: if someone wants to comment and say, speak up, we'll try to read those. Anyway, we have six pages of questions. All right. And an hour of time. So I couldn't find the little hourglass thing to flip over, but we're going to try to do a lightning round with our questions, and we will cover as many as we can. Truthfully, I've only printed out three of the six pages, but we'll get through those. We'll banter back and forth a little bit, and we'll knock off at about 3.30. So let's get going. But before we do, let's talk about you. What is new since we saw you last? Now, I'll caveat that question with... When we interviewed, that was last summer, yeah, it was, and you were on active duty. And when we aired your episode, I told them that you had since retired and were flying for a major airline. But what else is going on in your world? So
1: that indeed is true. I have retired. I'm flying for a major airline. Uh, it's it's a wonderful, great opportunity to have more time at home with the family. Um, still fly, which is wonderful, and. Uh, And uh, get paid for doing so, which is a requirement living out here in California. (laughs) Yeah, especially on Coronado. Yeah, so uh, it's fantastic. Uh, It's been it's been great. So spent a lot of time with the family, doing uh, community projects. Uh, It's been fantastic.
0: Excellent. Okay, I see Jennifer joined us. Jennifer, can you give us a thumbs up if the uh, comms are okay, or do we need to get closer to the microphone? Anyway, uh, well, good. So you're. "Quote unquote busy flying for the airlines, although not too much." You've had,
1: no. Uh, I mean, I'm doing more things at home, and with the uh, yeah, like I said, my wife hasn't touched laundry in about seven months. She's hey, pretty happy right. about that. So dad of
0: the year, just in time for Father's Day, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Nicely done.
1: After 24 years though, handling all the laundry, I got a long way to go to make <laughs> it up. So okay, good.
0: and she works, so actually yep. you guys can switch the roles yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Okay, outstanding. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, I guess we can just get right into it unless all there's right. anything else. So, all right. Well, I'll take the first question. I'll pose it to you. You can answer. We'll, again, do kind of a lightning all round. All right.
1: Is there, is there like a lifeline? If I had to, you know, <laughs> Maybe Jennifer, yeah, I can see your lira up. You maybe can help us. Yeah, perhaps. Okay, go ahead. Uh,
0: all right. So the first question is from Steve. This was submitted back in April. So I'm, I apologize to my listeners. I've been okay. remiss at getting through our questions. That's why we're doing this today. I don't know where Steve is from. He says, what are your thoughts on the effectiveness of two crew versus one, F-18C or E versus, he says F model, but I would put in D or F. Right. In a high-intensity environment or in an emergency situation, who performs better, two brains or one? Do two people get in each other's way?
1: Okay. So that's a good, great question. And one that was uh, asked... Uh, quite a bit, oh, guess what, has been about a decade ago or more now since we, uh, we introduced the F-18F to the F-18 community, which in the Navy had traditionally been a single-seat community. Um, I will tell you this, uh, and also in, in, in uh, full disclosure, my brother-in-law is a WIZO, a backseater in the uh, F-18F. Um, I have flown both single-seat and, and the dual-seat, but by far mostly the single-seat. Um, one plus one doesn't always equal two. Uh, and sometimes it can be minus one, but I'll tell you, nothing beats an effectively trained, uh, crew. It just doesn't. There's so much to do. By in the crew, effort. you mean two. By, me, yeah, okay. by two. All yeah. right. Yeah. Would you have a, a, an effectively, you know, two senior guys in particular? Not, and, you know, again, I, I, I did flew mostly with senior guys. Um, it's hard to beat. Yeah. Um, as you know, there's so much to do in that, in that, in that cockpit. When you can effectively share, task share, um, I, I, yeah, sorry to you know all of my I'm almost purists. Yeah, purists out there. Um, I've done both. I and that said, I still enjoy. Uh, maybe it's because I'm introverted. I and still enjoy the single seat. Fly by yourself. Yeah, but um, it, it, no question. When you get uh, two people that are court now, that's when you get that situation. When you don't, and when I first started. Um, it was difficult, and like I said, one plus one it doesn't always equal two, and sometimes it could be less than one. Yeah. So if you're not effectively trained, um, it can, in fact, as the as our uh, Steve. Steve mentions, yeah, in fact, you can. You can you can step on each other, and now once you have confusion inside the cockpit, uh, that detracts from all the things you have to do outside. So
0: certainly, but especially if you think the other guy is doing something, so like you said, you could actually be less effective than just by yourself. I remember this discussion first coming up. When a good friend of mine, Dave yep, no who Chili Culpepper, uh, wrapping up, yep, yeah. wrapping up his tour as CEO of Guantanamo mm-hmm. Bay. We talked about this in Top Gun. And he said to me, Jello, he said, with the right Rio, he was an F-14 guy at the time, he said, I will take that guy any day as a crew of two. He yeah. said, The wrong Wizzo or Rio forget it. I'd rather be on my own. So I think your answer is spot on. It all depends on who, and I bet if I had a whiz on here, he would tell me the same thing. Although of course he can't fly by himself or she, but the right pilot probably makes their job harder or easier. Sure. And so to answer Steve's specific question, certainly in an emergency, I think it's an advantage almost with anyone because some people are not great at tactics and can detract from your situational awareness. But in an emergency, just about anyone's good at, Hey, you handle this, and I'll handle that. And usually the pilot is flying and the NFO is communicating. Uh, but, yes, yeah, sometimes they do get in each other's way. And, and I agree. I spent almost my entire career single seat. But at the weapons school, when I had a chance to fly there with guys like Steiny Acevedo. There you go. Ofer. Those guys were all Top Gun graduates. It was amazing. Yeah. You would go to do a certain maneuver as part of your air-to-air training. And suddenly <laughs> you had the information. He's telling you things you want to yeah. know.
1: It's It's, perfect. it's
0: impressive. Yeah, so, very much yep, so. I agree. So, all right. Um, now, that being said, let's add this to it. I, uh, we did say speed round, but we'll try. If you were to get called back or invited back or whatever, and they said, Dad, we have a one-seat squadron for you or a two-seat squadron for you, not going into too much you know, explanation on who the seaters were, Is there one you would take over the
1: other? Well, I mean, okay, so, yeah, now, being an old guy, I haven't been away from it, I'll take the two-seater. Yeah, (laughs) Absolutely. Even
0: if you get a (laughs) smattering of performance from the guys in the back? Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, well... Uh, But if
1: I had to do it all over again, would I do it differently? No. Yeah, I agree. Just because it's just, uh, you know, just the way I was raised, the way I do it, is it again, uh, we just answered this saying that, yes, uh, an effective F crew is is better than a a single pilot, but uh, if I had to do it all over again, I'd still do it that way, but um i'm glad that we have them out there and uh, we need to have them out there but uh, that's also for another question on the package i think it's coming up that's right it, yeah. all
0: right why don't you take this next one from shane whose question is from facebook
1: all right is a high intensity environment or an emergency oh no sorry that's shane down here sorry yeah. about that if you fly the same airframe uh, is it possible for uh, to switch to a squadron that you want to go to for instance, when you were a kid and had a, a, a favorite squadron, or if your dad was a member of a certain squadron, could you request to go to that one? Well, uh, Shane, great question. Jello?
0: Well, so I think what he's getting at is if you fly F-18 Super Hornet and you want to go to VFA-4, but your dad was in VFA-5 or whatever, I mean, bad example, but the point being you can put in your request but it really comes down to the needs of the navy. Sometimes if the stars align, it works out that you can go to a particular squadron, if they have an opening, they want you and your timing works then you can. But for the most part, you end up going where they need you based on the timing, their own rotation with deployments and the such on so forth I should say. Now, it also depends on where you are in your career progression. So it might be time, let's say you're coming out of flight school as a brand new you know, student graduate, you're no longer a student. Well, everything I just said is true. They're going to send you where they need young pilots. But later, and I, you probably dealt with this as CAG Ops and I did as a training officer, which were sort of equivalent tours. At least I don't know your experience. I had a chance to kind of shop around some squadrons and I ended up at VFA 94 because it was in the air wing. I knew everybody. The rotation schedule worked out. And they asked me if I wanted to come, and I wanted to go, so it worked out. Uh, did you have a similar situation with?
1: So it's ironic. You know, as you get more senior, you have less chances. When I came as a CAG LSO going back to a squadron, uh, you know, you do. You always put in what you want, and the Navy's going to give you what it needs. What it needs so yeah. they, they did look at it. The folks at Millington, that's where we do all of our uh, Millington, personnel. Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and manning uh, for our p- pilots. Um, they do what they can, but uh, they're going to have to fill the needs of the Navy. Now, this was a factor. My dad was an F-4 pilot in VF-21. When I was a midshipman, I was out uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, on the independence, and VF, uh, VF-21 was out there now flying Tomcats. Wow. And I asked, "Hey, could I be, you know, hang out with those guys since my dad's a former?" Yeah, and they said, "Sure enough, that was an easy, cool. that was an easy ask and an easy answer."
0: But you're not really involved in this one; no. you're just kind of a, exactly. a strap hanger. But there's no
1: <laughs> way. Uh, it, so I think ultimately, uh, Shane. No, I mean you can ask. That's great. Um, ask for what you want and, and be happy with what you get. Yep. Um, that's exactly there
0: how you it go. All right. All right, from Michael Brown. Not sure where he's from. Do military pilots deployed have any sort of aircrew fatigue mitigation or rules where you can only fly for a certain amount of time and then a certain amount of downtime?
1: Yes. The short answer is yes. Absolutely. Um, a uh, that's governed by an instruction, uh, the 3710 instruction for in the Navy that all the naval aviators are familiar with, Chapter Eight. Um, We can, our crew day begins at any time we, you know, our reports for flying duties, that starts the clock, and it ends when we're done with not just the flight, but the debriefing and everything that has to do with flight duties. The most that can be is 18 hours. And if it's 18 hours, then we gotta have 15 hours of of crew rest. Now, caveat all of this discussion, um, that one of the first things that says in our instruction is note, operational commanders, in fact, the senior, operational commander who's responsible for aviation uh operations which will only be the CAG he can waive this okay. so it's waverable uh to the detriment though perhaps uh, uh you know obviously increasing buying some more risk in doing so mm-hmm. so uh, yes there's that there's uh, how many times you can fly in a day how many flights can be at night so it, it's highly um it's it's regulated and it's spelled out pretty well in our instruction on what we can do And when we have to, um, we can get waivers. And I, you know, we flew. I don't know if uh, you had a uh, a cruise like that, but when we were in uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, we were flying a tremendous amount and all past those, uh, you know, those uh, limits because we had folks we had to support on the ground, and we did it.
0: And you just try not to make a routine of it. But yeah, you're right. You can you can go up to that. But let's talk about normal every day. So if you're shore based between deployments, typically 12 hours is the expectation. So if Mm -hmm. you're flying and you're going to land and debrief and be done, let's say, by 11 p.m. at night, well, then not only should you not show up before 11 a.m., but if you did, they'd probably get upset at you because now your 12-hour day starts earlier, so you couldn't come in. Now, on the carrier, you might be tempted to ask, you know, based on Dud's answer, well, but you're always on the ship. How do you do that? And and the point is you just try to stay out of the ready room. You try to stay away from any official duties i mean obviously you can't get off the carrier but you can sleep as much as you can you can exercise you can go get chow you can even probably visit your shops if you have a maintenance shop that you're in charge of but right. for the most part you don't show up and start planning your mission or okay. writing the schedule or whatever your collateral duties. no is. that all starts so, at the
1: clock and we're supposed to have also in the instruction an opportunity note the word opportunity mm-hmm. for eight hours of un- uninterrupted sleep right. So of course that's also how do you do that on a carrier? Well, <laughs> get used to it actually. But yeah. Yeah. So it it is regulated and um, and it's uh, it's already been it's been demonstrated by many studies that obviously the the more, the more fatigued you are, the less capable you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you, it, it equates to almost being under the influence of alcohol. Dependence. Oh yeah. Fatigued, oh, they've done studies hard. absolutely. So it's uh, very important. Not often waived, but it can be, and when it has to be. And um, so it it is, and um, we do what we need to do to get the mission done. I will say our Air Force uh brothers and sisters are a little bit um seem to be a little bit more stringent on on theirs uh, i don't know how their instruction reads but like i said right at the beginning ours is waiverable and w- and when operations uh make it requirement and that's you know people's lives are at stake we're going to do what it takes to get the mission done. for sure for sure
0: and to your point we try to provide an opportunity for eight hours of uninterrupted sleep yeah. which usually again ashore means in my previous example if you're done at 11 even if the next day you're not flying at all you would expect to hear them say, "Don't be." Well, you would just do it. Don't come back before 11 because that's when you left here the night before. Yep. All right. You want to take Rob's again from Facebook?
1: All right, Rob. Thanks for. My, I can see that there's folks joining, and if I could really see that far without the aid of glasses, I'd welcome you all, but I can't see. Anything. It's all blurred to me. So right. Jello over to you. But uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, question after listening to Top Gun and Vietnam Ace episodes. If soft deck for training is 10K uh, feet altitude, how do pilots develop low-level ACM skills as demonstrated in actual combat situations? The uh, the aircraft performance varies at altitude. How is this gap in training rules covered? Very good question, Rob.
0: Absolutely. So just to remind everybody, so the soft deck is an altitude above the actual ground where when we are doing training dogfighting that we then restrict ourselves to certain parameters and minimum airspeeds so as not to depart controlled flight. And then what you have is the hard deck, which is 5,000 feet above the actual ground or water. And at that point, if you dip below that, you treat it like the actual ground. If you hit it by even 10 feet, you are a rocks kill, as we call it. So to answer your question, Rob, what we do is we accept the fact that when the chips are down, And life or death is on the line that you are going to do anything in your power to avoid the rocks and trees and mountains and mobile homes or whatever's out there when you're fighting for your life. Because if you don't, you give up, you're going to die. And most fighter pilots aren't going to do that. But to the genesis of your question, the way we simulate that is if you think about particularly an F-18, which is our experience if you're gonna go into combat, you're going to have probably all on a Hornet and most on a Super Hornet of the external pylons under the wing and those extract a toll on performance. So in training such as Top Gun, what they may do is they will not have all the pylons and they've done studies to show that if we only have a certain number of them when we're doing, or none of them, frankly, when we're doing dedicated BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, that the performance at five and 10,000 feet MSL if you, in fact, are above, let's say, the actual ocean. If you're in Fallon, you're actually up quite a bit higher because the ground is quite a bit higher. But at, at, regu- at regular five to 10,000 feet MSL, that your performance is roughly the same as it would be at about zero or over the water.
1: Um, yeah, I, that, uh, the only thing I add is that, uh, and it's a great question, um, that the uh, the biggest performance uh, issues that you're going to have uh, that are safety related, I think that's kind of what Rob's saying. Hey, you're close to the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, a is we have other training that we do, low altitude training that kind of trains you on how to fly in low altitude environment, and then G G onset's the biggest thing because you have a lot more G available down there in that mm-hmm. thick True. air. Uh, and and quite frankly, if you've down at five thousand feet um, AGL over the water or over you know Death Valley uh, th- that's pretty good performance. Oh, yeah. so we, we have ways of, we've trained to that, that risk mitigation, I think in other ways as well. And then you can see the performance. It's a great question. Now we can do ACM. I've been in the large force exercises out at uh, Nellis where we have, I've, that's the only time I've ever done low altitude, you know, at 500 feet ACM. It's 180 degrees a turn. Uh, it's pretty impressive, but again, we train to that. And again, it's a risk mitigation, right? Cause, right. um, you wouldn't want to go out of control at 3,000 feet because that's where you're training because uh, then you would have to eject out of the aircraft.
0: Almost right away because otherwise your rated descent could be so great that you don't have enough time. So,
1: so it's a midi- it's a cost-benefit analysis, and I yep. think we do fine by our, our current training. Yeah, levels.
0: I agree. I agree. All right, uh, I think what's next uh, for me. So T- Tomas Tomaz maybe, uh, asks, what's your opinion? Uh, well, I don't know if we can answer this one or not. What's your opinion of the F-35? We can certainly answer that. <laughs> have you had any personal experience with it or have you – Asked others who had experience with it. Uh,
1: well, I have. Uh, I've, I've pet one once because uh, I called it the mythical unicorn. <laughs> We've been expecting the F-35 since about 2012. And, and uh, as some of you may know, we uh, in the Navy, have, we haven't yet uh, introduced it officially, IOC'd it yet. That's coming later this year.
0: The Marines have.
1: The Marines have. The B model. Um, That's mm-hmm. an interesting discussion as well, but I'll stay away from that one. Um, uh, and I have certainly no friends that have flown it. And, I, and here's what I will say. Uh, and I, in fact, I talked to a JO at the Naval Aviation Muse- uh, Museum about a month ago. I was there and asked this Marine captain who was flying it, "Give it to me straight." And uh, you know, I trust the JOs, and he says, "I will take that. I'll take this airplane right now." And this is the B model into war, where it's designed to go in those high threat. And I was like, "Well, that's a pretty good endorsement." Yeah, that's for sure. Um, it's got some work to do. It's very, very expensive airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's the largest DOD acquisition program in all time as, as far as costs go. So, um,
0: it's, that's amazing, by the yeah.
1: way. Yeah. And it's, an ama- it's going to be an amazing and a great airplane. Right. It's, uh, it's unfortunate it's taken so long to get here. Um, I
0: think that's a result of the complexity.
1: That and the fact that we have so many players, international true, and everything else. True. So I think we've learned a lot uh, in the United States in general, yeah. not just the Navy. Right. Uh, but, and, and maybe we don't want to go down this kind of big path again. Um, but it's going to be a great airplane. Uh, and what our national leaders have to balance in a resource-constrained environment is how much do we, you know, how much can we afford? Right. And, and it's going to be very, very expensive. And, and the Navy's thought about that. But I think we have a question coming up that talks a little bit more about that. Um, if not, I'll, let me just touch on it right now.
0: We can always say we aren't touched on it. Yeah.
1: We? So, I mean, it's, it's – uh, we're not going to have – the air wing of the future uh, that we envision here in the next uh, 20 years is not going to have more than one F-35 squadron in an air wing. Really? Sure. I
0: did not know
1: that. Yeah, so it's going to be an F-35 squadron and three Super Hornet squadrons. Hmm. Um, So um, we're not going to have a lot of them. Uh, We just can't afford a lot of them, but they are going to give us some tremendous capabilities. And I will also say, having done a lot of integration with the F-22, working with Super Hornets, uh, the integration of the fourth and fifth generation fighters is a a, a really nice compromise, if you will. Sure, we'd love to have all F-35s, but we can't afford that. Um, the integration of the two is going to be is, is going to be quite an impressive capability uh, as as we move forward. So yeah. very expensive, uh, very capable, um, and so and if the guys flying it right now say so they'd like to take it to war where it's designed to go, then that's a pretty good endorsement. And and it's not even you know there's still some things that are going to be upgraded here, moving you know in software and everything continues to improve. So yeah, future's bright for that.
0: Tom, has, my answer to this is simply I have no experience with it. I've had anecdotal experiences like I just had with Dud. And I, I don't know why, but I missed all the in-briefs and all the different discussions as I was transitioning out. And so I just never really became aware of anything. So, But everything I've heard is pretty good. But yeah, to your point, very complex with so many partners. We'll all compete, not all competing needs, but a lot of competing needs, international players. And I heard at one point... Parts of this airplane were made in 48 out of 50 states.
1: Yeah, but you see that in the Hornet as well. <laughs> Do you? Okay. So as, as you know, I worked on Capitol Hill, right. uh, and that's just part of the politics of everything. That way hit. nobody cancels the program? Because everybody loses
0: jobs in their right. constituency. Yeah. Great. All I right. would
1: not pa- count, uh, point <laughs> at the F-35 as a great uh, acquisition strategy or a great example of acquisition. Uh, in fact, it's pretty poor, but only exceeded maybe by the B-22 Osprey. Oh, dear. Um, so it's, it's it, you know... We hope as we move forward into the FX, which is now under development, which is the, the, the fighter beyond the F 35, mm-hmm. that we uh, hopefully learn some lessons and, and do it a little better moving forward.
0: Okay. Why don't you take Stevens from the UK? Or at least that first part, we can break it up. All right, if you want. from the UK.
1: Love London. Uh, I was there last year with a family. It was fantastic. Great. What do you think of the F 35 not having a gun? Only the US Air Force version will have a cannon. Uh, and I think he goes on to say the F-35 will use missile only. And what's your opinion of the shoot down of this? Here, do you well, want to get into that later? Let's, yeah, let's start. Okay, with let's the first start part. with this: the F-35, and what do you think of the Air Force having the internal gun, and uh, our model, the C model, not having one?
0: I think it's a bad idea, because I think we proved in Vietnam with the F-4 that a gun is handy. Now, that being said, I understand that compromises are necessary, there you go. and it is my opinion or guess, I should say, that the Air Force variant, the F-35A, was sufficiently light enough that they could afford to put one inside, whereas the B, with its vertical short takeoff landing V-stall, we've heard, you've heard us mention that term on the show before, and the C model, which has to have all the gear it needs to land on a carrier, that my guess is the engineers just could not make it work. You just can't get from here to there. You know, It's like, just physics-wise, it, it didn't work. So I I temper my comment with, it's a bummer that it wasn't capable, but I realize it was probably a trade-off and they have a pod instead. And will they load up the pod and just have it on all the time, in which case it's always going to be heavy and less stealthy anyway? I don't know, but it is a bummer, but compromises have to be made. I mean, you look at any airplane, the F-18, certainly F-15 and 16, all through aircraft development, it's a series of compromises and trade-offs. I think Sunshine talked about that actually on our last Facebook Live session. No one aircraft does everything perfectly, and so that probably was a result of that as well.
1: And I think you nailed it, gentlemen. We talked about it before. It's, it's about compromise. Yeah. Um, not ideal. Uh, but there's a lot of smart people trying to make uh, hard decisions. And in this case, mm-hmm. they elected not to have a, an internal gun, and I think, for all the reasons you said. Yeah. Uh, it's great. Well, I see some questions here. Do you take the questions well, up there, we, after we go to... Okay. We hit those
0: at the end. Uh, we'll get We'll try through. to get through these uh, lightning round for you yeah, all Yeah, about 45 minutes that. of these, and then we'll scan that. It's always a creepy part, though, because you got to get real close to read it. I can then sort of see
1: one there. David, or Jason, I see your question. We'll try to get to right,
0: it. right, we'll get to you. Uh, let's see. So I'll hit you on the next part. This is still Stephen from the UK. Um, so... The uh, Basically, what Stephen is at, well, I'll just read it. The F-35C will use missile only, and what your opinion is on the shootdown of the Syrian Su-22 fitter by the F-A-18E uh, from V-F-A-87, which was assigned to carrier Airwing 8. He certainly did as uh, homework. Yes. Uh Its pilot engaged the fitter and initially fired an name 9 x Sidewinder, close range, uh, heat-seeking missile, from about a half a mile, which was de- this is all his question, which was defeated by flares, his words, not mine, launched by the Su-22 pilot. The Super Hornet then re-engaged and fired an AIM-120 AMRAAM, uh, which hit the fitter despite being fired from relatively close range. How did a 30-year-old Su-22 defeat a modern AIM-9X?
1: Well, I think uh, we'd have to interview the pilot who had to end up uh, ejecting out of that uh, airplane uh, to to answer that question. Uh, In all honesty, there's not a way to to do that. We don't have enough information, and if we do, we probably couldn't, given our backgrounds, wouldn't be appropriate to really comment much further. I will say this. uh, The airplane was shot down, so congratulations to the whole team who did that. Um, There is a – and I don't have it here, but you can do a YouTube search, and you can hear – uh, the pilot who flew the mission and the folks that were involved in the mission real time talk about it at last year's Tailhook uh, convention it's uh it's worth it if you're uh want to know more about how, how it all went down um they did a great job they did their job and uh they shot their eventually they shot the airplane down uh and his call sign again was uh, mob mob yeah and like we're all tied so when, when something work doesn't work try something else and he did he switched to aim 120 and it it blew the guy up good on him yeah and so yeah other than that um i I, I wouldn't uh, lose heart in the aim 9x it's an, an amazing missile and there's not enough information even when you listen to mob's uh recount to understand what may or may not have happened true
0: yeah and i'm trying to get in touch with mob uh grand from episode seven tried to put me in touch with him so one of these days if we can connect and he's willing we'll try to get him on the show uh but we may not connect and he may be unwilling i don't know but you, you know, Stephen, your question was, uh, "What is your opinion on the on this whole situation?" And I would say to that, if I may get semantic, that it's hard to have an opinion when I know certain things from our career as fighter pilots that we can't disclose in unclassified settings. So. You know, again, I think Fitz hit it on the head. Things happen. We don't know if maybe that missile had a problem. Maybe there was some one in a million thing that manifested itself in the first, as I understand, combat employment of that weapon. But I'm not going to either offer answers or excuses because, frankly, I just don't know.
1: Same as, as you said. I'm glad we have the M9X. Yep.
0: So. All right. I think Steven's last one is here. I'll ask it to you. Why does the United States Marine Corps use a lot of F A eighteen D? Does this model of the Hornet have an extra capability over the C model?
1: Uh, nope. Has no. It's, in fact, it is the C with two seats, eight hundred pounds. And a little less gas. You're just pounds. about to get there. Yep. Eight hundred pounds less gas. But this gets to that earlier question. You know, do we have a what's better, single seat or dual seat? Well, the Marine Corps, um, you know, has uh, you know takes its mission of supporting troops on the ground. Very seriously, as it's we all do. It's oh, their, yeah. But it's their bread and butter, right? That's right. Uh, you know, they talk about joint warfighting. The Marines have been doing it from their, from their birth. Uh, these guys are second mm-hmm. to none when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And so that fac mission that they do, uh, and that we do as well, is a two-seat mission in the Navy and Marine Corps. And so uh, they needed to have that uh, two-seat version. It is, in fact, a Charlie model with just less gas. And to make it easy, we have the F-18A, we made a two-seat version. Anyone want to guess out there?
0: They've seen episode six, or oh, okay. ten. It they, was the B,
1: <laughs> then the C, and then the two version of the D. Now, right. after that, it kind of breaks because the E and F are, are quantum leap above the other one. And it's a new design, but it's the, same, it's the same thing. E, single seat. That's right. F is the dual seat of the E. The G is what breaks the... Uh, the paradigm. Yeah, they should is, have skipped right to H or something. Yeah, but okay. anyway. Okay. So anyway, that's it. They, they do it because they have that FAC-A mission. That's primarily why they have, they have single seats as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what they'll send to the aircraft carrier air wings when we integrate uh, on time to time. Yep. But uh, for that FAC-A mission, they they got the D model.
0: Okay. Yeah, nothing to add. I agree.
1: Navy bought those, too. We bought two-seat models, but we use them all for the FRS training.
0: True. The Navy does. That's yeah. true. And just a quick note on that, an F-18B and D, and F, I guess, can be configured so that the back seat is yep. for the wizzo, which has the side controllers and all the hotas that he or she gets back there, or another stick and throttle for That's your right. first flight exactly right. or follow-on flight. All right, uh, why don't you go with Mark? We're not sure where he's from.
1: Okay, Mark asks, did you ever get to sit in the cockpit of a foreign, non-American-produced, friendly or otherwise, aircraft, and what struck you about foreign air forces as odd or strange maybe i should have taken
0: that one well you can have a go in a second but yes i did get to sit in oh, a, yeah, yeah, in a yeah. mig 29 fulcrum oh, and yeah it was neat it was uh, just you know it was foreign to me so it just struck me as different and odd but given enough time to get used to it i probably could have flown the thing and become accustomed to it but the layout the gauges of course the I don't even know, what do you call the Russian Cyrillic or whatever the language is? Yeah. Not not English. Is that what it's called? Okay. Okay. Um, So all that to me, just the whole experience was very foreign. Um, The way they have their stick is positioned a little differently, with a little more of a a twist to it. And you sit a little more, it seemed like to me in that aircraft, a little more upright. So it it felt very foreign. But at that time, I had flown nothing but the F-18 after training. And so I was very used to that. So I think I could have jumped in probably an F-15, and felt, you know, some things look somewhat similar, but it would still feel a little bit foreign. So for me, it was a MiG-29 Fulcrum.
1: Yeah. For me, it was a MiG-19, Pakistani MiG-19 out of Karachi.
0: You so, got to sit in it?
1: Oh, and then fly it.
0: You got to fly it?
1: Yeah. So we're, yeah. No way. So, Yeah, so... <laughs>
0: Wait, but not by yourself.
1: No, no, no. No, no <laughs> I, I had I uh, I don't know what the guy's name was up front. I uh, probably couldn't pronounce it very well, even if I knew it. Uh, I do have a distinct... Uh, Memory though, and again this is Karachi, Pakistan, um, a city of twenty million people. But where the base was, it seemed like it was a you know base of hundred people. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, there's a whole bunch of bearded guys looking up at me. It's and it's not a very high uh, ride right up uh, there in the Mig nineteen, and uh, I just thought, what did I just sign myself up for? <laughs> um, and and of course now it's not really fair. That, I mean this is nineteen late nineteen fifties technology here. Um, so the little you know stick with a little bicycle brake. And all the things that I saw there were, uh, again, a little more awkward, not as well-engineered as, say, mm-hmm. you know, 1980s F-18. I wasn't expecting that, but uh, it was quite an experience. Um, it, it The flight went fine. It, it reminded me of flying the T-2 Buckeye, big straight okay. wing. It didn't, sure. didn't bleed much in turns. It was it was kind of interesting, and we made it back. Uh, I guess of note, though, and I had reason to be cautious, by our CAG, the next day flew the uh, the equivalent. It's Chinese-made, but of a, basically a MiG-21, okay. a Pakistani Make seven 20, or something. Yeah, like. and mm-hmm. uh, the canopy fell off on that one in flight.
0: Just fell off. Just fell off. Just, okay.
1: Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, yeah. it, it is rare though, and it, and both of us are fortunate to have uh, I think to have done that. We don't we don't do enough of that. We have True. we have pep tours where people can go fly different right. tours, but yeah. uh, it's rare for to get the opportunity. So I was I mean I was happy to go. A first of all to go see a different country yeah I mean I'm going to pakistan and probably okay. got
0: off the boat for a little while to go do that exactly there you so, go that's always yeah. a win yeah and okay.
1: uh yeah not maybe as big a win as you know but it was still a win <laughs> and <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but it was good it was a good experience
0: cool. pep means what personal exchange program, program yeah. so we have aussies and brits that come over here and we send folks so uh, i had a friend who went and flew with the swiss air force yep, uh, so, yep, yep cool. Spanish. all right why don't you take brad wolf's question from facebook
1: all right, Brad from Facebook. Have you ever dropped something in the cockpit and gone inverted in order to hopefully retrieve it?
0: Yes, absolutely. I, unfortunately, I did not. It was my functional check flight uh, little, you know, <laughs> checklist, and it's a little, you know, like this, and you write down when you do certain things. And I put it on my knee board and didn't secure it well enough, and went to do something, and off it drifts behind me. And dang it! So I had to do a little bit of like finessing to try to get it and roll up and side down and push, and it. It didn't come back, and this was on the ship, until, can you guess when I finally got it back? On the trap? Exactly. (laughs) It (laughs) flew up and uh, came up to the windscreen and just grabbed that, stuck it in my nap
1: bag. (laughs) Nothing to see here.
0: Check off everything else that was done, because I remembered from memory, and off I went. But (laughs) I did hear anecdotally of an F-14 crew, I don't know if this is true or not, but it makes a good story, so let's call it true, who (laughs) accepted an F-14 from another squadron, because we sometimes move aircraft... Back and forth between squadrons, and the first thing you do when you get a new airplane is that functional check flight. And on their inverted check, he said he found a moldy peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> in a plastic bag.
1: <laughs> Classic.
0: I don't know if that's true or not, but it's fun enough, yeah. so we'll, we'll pretend it is. Yeah. How about you?
1: Uh, I know I have. I can't remember what it was for. Couldn't have been all that important. And I do, I, I do have a you know memory of being you know I don't know maybe I'm batting fifty percent. I'm on occasions like yep, I got what I needed or. No, I didn't. And then what's worse is you've got to go tell maintenance about it because right. something's in the cockpit that that downs the airplane. So It yeah, didn't right. happen a lot, but uh, you'll try or anything not to have to be able to make that call to maintenance saying, hey, jet's down for FOD in the cockpit. Yeah, no,
0: no, no. Jet's down. What for? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. FOD the cockpit. Yeah,
0: what? Right. FOD in the cockpit. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right.
1: By the way, we, as you know, part of our combat uh, G awareness and the, and the things we do before we go into even training is to do that inverted check for lots of reasons, not just, you know, so we, we pull, you know, ni- you know, go 90 right for four and, and 90 back the other way for six and then, you know, roll inverted to, to check to see that there's nothing in there. So we're doing that kind of and stuff. And have you ever, while
0: well, inverted like little bits of things yeah. like trying to <laughs> – grow?
1: well, yeah, little dust things, but yeah, nothing a big. big, yeah, but,
0: yeah. Dust bunny – not bunnies, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Uh, next one I think is for you. It's from Life or Leaf from Sweden, but he lives in the U.K., so, uh, my
1: ex- cousins are Swedish. Born and raised there. I was in All Stockholm right. last, uh, last
0: year. You have a connection with everybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you, you, this should be your show.
0: All right. Are you issued additional items such as... Well, seized from Sweden, so he's asking about warm clothing. Oh, yeah. uh, are you issued additional items such as warm clothing, thick gloves, woolly hat, etc.? If you operate in a winter Arctic climates, could you elaborate on any additional cold weather survival gear you may be issued?
1: Yes. The uh, short answer is yes. Most of us, Jello myself included, have not really operated. In fact, where we're operating, it's quite warm. Uh, up in Fallon, though, where I did my last bit of flying, I actually got some really nice cold weather gear, because out there, uh, if you have to get out of the airplane, it's cold and it's wintertime, and you flew up
0: there. And you're so. going to be there a while before the helicopter can come get you. Yeah,
1: so. so you get gloves, you get nice uh, hats, um, you know, shirts you can wear underneath that are nice, keep you warm. Uh, the dreaded one, though, that we all fear and we all have is the poopy suit. The dry suit? The dry suit, yes. The yeah. uh, dry suit that we put on, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, climbing into a dishwasher glove, I guess, that's... Really it's a tight, good way to put yeah. It. <laughs> and until they, and for most of our careers, they had this old neck that was just it almost asphyxiated you, mm-hmm. you know, wearing that thing. And I think I wore it once only, because again, if we're flying over water that uh, require temperatures that require us to to increase our survival time, we have to wear that. Right. So that would be the other piece of major cold weather gear that we get. That's the one that I've worn. The other stuff that I talked about, you really don't. Uh, you might, yeah, you wear some of it when you're flying. You got it, and it's comfortable. That mm-hmm. the dry suit is generally speaking, awful. pretty awful. Yes. Because you're putting it on, like in Lemoore, where we flew a lot, you're putting it in in 90 degree weather, putting it on in 90 degree weather. <laughs> and then pre-flighting the airplane. And pre-flighting the aircraft. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've lost 20 pounds before you even start the engine, so. But to your
0: point, when you go 100 miles west and you're out over the water, it's not just, if I may add to what you're saying, it's not just the water temperature, but also the time to survive, right. or uh, time to time. rescue. Yeah. So if you're going to be in a certain temperature for 10 minutes, you might need to wear it. If you're gonna be in something quite a bit warmer, but for an hour, if you were to go down as they would expect the helicopter to get to you, yeah. then you may also need it. Yeah, so to your point, when you had that real tight thing on, you didn't want to do any turning of your head because you'd come back with a, surf, a surfer <laughs> rash, and it was just awful. No matter what you so, did, you were
1: just, yeah, yep, I'll be out,
0: yep, up. That's right. All right, we're uh, are doing pretty well. We've got about another 10 minutes of these, and then we'll take a look okay. at what, uh, what folks got there. Uh, do you want to take, looks like, two parts here from Jordan okay. in Ireland? So just take that first part.
1: Do you have uh, experience flying only the one-seater F-18 Hornet or Super Hornet, or have you flown in both the one- and two-seat configurations? How transferable are the skills for a pilot between the two? Uh, and he says, you know, type rating is that exists in military aviation. Uh, it kind of does, by the way. Uh, is it common for pilots to swap between squadrons of one- or two-seaters?
0: So my experience through my F-18 life, if you will, was first two-seaters because, let's say you were my instructor Mm -hmm. and I was your student, I'm in the front, you're in the back on the very first flight, you make sure everything's cool, and then a couple flights like that, and then I'm in a single seat or a two-seater with the back seat empty. And then in my case, it sounds like yours too, I spent most of the rest of my career in single seat. It wasn't until after I was a department head, I'd been in the Navy, let's see, I got there in 06. So I'd been in the Navy 14 years where I first started flying tactically with Wizzos. And we've already touched on this earlier in this Facebook Live session, but I really enjoyed it because the guys I flew with were fantastic. So Bloach, who was on the show earlier, uh, like I already said, Stiney, Ofer, a few others, I'm sure I'm forgetting, but they were they were phenomenal. But to your point, The skills are transferable, but there are some things that I was used to doing that suddenly I wasn't doing, and I'll give you a very easy one, communicating with air traffic control. Yep. And and not doing the communicating, I found it skipped a part of my brain.
1: Absolutely. And so
0: I would miss level off altitudes. I would miss headings. I Never would miss... miss
1: a call when you're flying an airplane just by yourself. Yeah. Exact had the same exact experience. Yeah.
0: So the the again the short answer I think is very easy to go from one to the other with some proficiency jumping from one to the other, but um, it does take some. I don't know, situational awareness on your part to go, not only the way I went, but I've heard other people who went all two-seaters to a single seat suddenly were forgetting to do things because they were used to someone else doing them.
1: Exactly. That was exactly my experience. Uh, For the type rating piece, if you want to think of it in type ratings, A through uh, D are all single type rating, if you will. No required training to go in between. Uh, If you go from being a, uh, you know, like we did, um, flying those airplanes to the Super Hornet, uh, that's a f- quick five-hour syllabus. But right. it is, nonetheless, it's a, you do have to do a five-hour syllabus.
0: There's enough common in between the two that and you then, give you the differences. And
1: now you're good. You could <laughs> theoretically now fly the E, F, or G. Now the G is right. a completely different mission, and you would need training for that mission set, but the actual flying and type rating, um, e, e through G would be the same type. That's right.
0: Uh, the G apparently has a few different emergency procedures and some other system stuff because yeah. it is plumbed for electronic attack, so... All right. Um, oh, and just to the point, yes, instead of calling it a type rating, which you and I each have in our own aircraft right. at our airlines, we call it a NATOPS qual. Yeah. So at one point, I had three NATOPS quals. I had A through D Hornet, uh, EF Super Hornet, that was before the G joined the group, and F-16 AB. So I had three at once at one point. That's I had two.
1: It just wasn't as cool as a T-34C instead of the F-16. But oh, yes. Yeah. wow. So, yeah. But as a cat so oh, you get a chance high. to fly all of the airplanes <laughs> off the carrier, which is cool. Oh, very
0: good. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's good stuff. All right, uh, let's see. Mine to you then, right? So, so still Jordan from Ireland. I know there are some roles that only the two-seat Hornet can perform. We talked about that earlier, yep. mainly for air control airborne. Yep. With the introduction of the F-35 and the eventual retirement of the Hornet, what do you see as taking over those roles? Possibility of two-seat F-35 for the Navy, or are the automated systems in the F-35 advanced enough the Rio Wizzo will soon become an endangered animal.
1: Okay, so, we've, so to make this a speed round, we can do it quickly. Yeah, it, it, there won't be, as I touched on earlier, for the foreseeable future next couple decades, it's a single F-35 squadron, single seat, with, uh, with uh, two, three Super Hornet squadrons, one of which will be the F-squadron. Right. So, uh, nope, wizzos aren't going away. Uh, they're only, you know, then it's only one squadron per air wing, uh, but they're not going away. There won't be a two-city or F-35. Nope. Uh, that's not going to happen. So,
0: and that's not new. They've had single-seat aircraft since the F-14. I mean, yeah. you'd put a pilot in the back, but the first time you flew, you, you were flying. And same with the A-10 and a few others.
1: Yeah. So, so, um, so they, yeah, I think we covered that. through. All right.
0: Uh, but I guess, uh, will the backseater soon become an endangered animal? I guess not because you said they'll have an f Yeah, we're going to uh, – And yeah. the Gs. Yep. And the Gs. Yep. All right. Different all right. mission,
1: though, but different mission set. They're actually called EWOs. Ec- ECMOs. Is it EWOs? EWOs now. Oh, okay. Yeah, electronic warfare officers. I, I think I've been of, saying that wrong Yeah, the so they're EWOs uh, right. in the back of the, of the G instead of ECMOs, which is what they were in the back of the Prowler. Uh, and, uh, and then we have our WIZOs, and those are two distinct mission sets. Gotcha.
0: I can't remember who asked that one, but I'm going to ask this one because it's about carrier ops, and I think you can touch on it pretty well with your CAG ops background. Uh, so speaking for carrier flight operations, does only one squadron fly at a time? This will be a pretty easy one. Uh, this is from Steve in Canada. Uh, but he does say, I'm sure that answer is no. So how about we just say, no. <laughs> uh, so pretending here, he says, if VFA, VF 103 and VF 96 are going at it, the, the CAT, the safety LSOs, for example, do they all stay the same for that cycle or do they change guys? Uh, let me just paraphrase this. Um, so, you know, what if uh, Hornet Squadron is flying with the Greyhounds and all that? I think you get the point. Uh, do they change everyone from the brown shirts, yellow shirts? So... We're getting the point of it. Tell tell us how it works.
1: Yeah, it's an air wing team. We're all working together up there. So our we have you know folks that are specialized shovel shooters for each aircraft. They go with that aircraft up to the catapult. But we 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 train together. We work together as an air wing. So there's it mixes completely. And in fact, uh, sometimes in in extreme circumstances, you alluded to it earlier, sharing aircraft or at least donating to another squadron. We took it one step further in our operational uh, um, Iraqi Freedom. Uh, well, no, it was different crews, but we're still over Iraq. Um, we actually shared pilots. Oh, wow. And because there were with the duties that we had to do for strike planning, there weren't enough pilots wow. to meet the mission requirements. So we would share. We had a, me- you know, a memorandum of, uh, of understanding. And mm-hmm. so we actually shared pilots. I would fly my sister squadron's aircraft and vice versa. Um, it didn't work out well for one of our aircrafts, as it turns out. It diverted into Al-Assad. It then got full of gas on a hot summer day, started to take off. Uh, unfortunately, in the X-wing fighter configuration, meaning the wings were still folded... <laughs> So somebody screamed at him to abort. The pilot aborted. Thank goodness he was safe. And you can imagine it almost like a cartoon, uh, like a Bugs Bunny. You know, uh, happy to be alive. Can't believe what he just did. Takes a big sigh of relief and sets the parking brake. You want to have a guess what happens when he sets the parking brake? Keeps all the heat
0: in there and just festers.
1: And and becomes a fire and a Class Bravo uh, mishap. So
0: anyway. Not not to uh, derail your story, but he could have done that in his own airplane.
1: He couldn't right, but as it turns out, didn't <laughs> so yeah, it anyway. egg on? So face anyway, we inside. all fly together, we all train together, yeah. and when necessary, uh, we even share each other's uh, food, so to speak, to get the mission done. Yep. And that's exactly what we need. Yeah,
0: Steve, we talked about this on episodes 11 and 12 with Pappy, and the yellow shirts, the, gosh, green how many? Shirts, I
1: think brown shirts.
0: Yellow. Whites. Well, the yellow, the yellow is all ship. The green can be ship or squadron, but yep. the the ship's green and the ships, uh, just those. Purple the, is just a ship. Oh, purple, thank you. Yeah. So those will be for everybody. And then you'll have specialized, like Fitz just said, for your squadron, like when you're doing your startup or when you're on the catapult. But otherwise, every squadron is going to fly almost every cycle, and paddles will wave no matter who's coming down, yeah. according to CAC paddles' direction. And so it's all one giant team. Yeah. All right, I think we have time for uh, – we're getting close. Yeah. One more quick one. Well, I don't know if it's quick or not. I haven't read what it is. Uh, how long – who read that one? Uh, anyway, I'll read it to you. This is from Zachary on Facebook. How long exactly d- does it take t- to do all those operations to launch a single plane, again, on the carrier? If operating at full launching capacity, how quickly can the carrier launch planes? If the carrier had to scramble a large a large amount of planes to take on an incoming threat, how long would that take? So this actually could be a long answer, but let's just hit some of the highlights.
1: Uh, well, so we can launch and recover uh, simultaneously. Um the deck has to be spotted uh, correctly to do what, you're, uh, what Zachary is maybe referring to. Um, if it were a pop-up threat, that could be a, an issue. But we, we can launch a plane every, gosh, uh, 45 seconds. Probably just, less. I mean, I mean, yeah, if, if we got all to,
0: four loaded, you could shoot them all four at yeah, once. Yeah, we can shoot them pretty
1: quick. Yeah, right. we can, in fact, we can do cubby launches and other things. We can shoot them quick. But if we're launching and recovering simultaneously, we try to recover aircraft uh, anywhere from 45 to 60 seconds. So that's that's standard. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then after that this is what you can launch off the front end. So it, yep. relatively quickly.
0: Let, and let me uh, put a different spin on this answer, if I may, uh, Zachary. The, the longest it could take is weeks. Now, bear with me, right? Before a ship goes anywhere, we've got pre-sale meetings, we've got all the operations. I mean, there's so much that goes involved yeah. to getting a ship out where it can do it. And then once you're on the ship, then it's just a question of, like Dud said, the spotting, the posture that you're in. And so the shortest if weeks is the longest the shortest is maybe as little as 5 minutes if you have alert 7s which I've stood that is where you're in the airplane I've launched on waiting and I have too and it took me about 5 minutes Um, In fact, I was on alert 15, which is where I'm wearing my gear in the ready room downstairs and got called away and I was airborne in about seven minutes. And but to your point, if there's a giant incoming threat and you know about it, you might have what's called an alpha strike ready where everybody's been briefed. The planes are fueled and loaded and they're all ready. And if they get the word, uh oh, here comes the enemy or uh oh, we need to go attack, then they could have all 20 aircraft launched from the word go in, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, 10,
1: 15.
0: I was going to say 20. I mean, if everyone's not in their jets, I'm saying, oh, okay. everybody's going to yeah. run up there and go. So it depends on the threat.
1: And, and I, yeah. And you hit on it. If, and if we weren't, uh, if we're not aware that that kind of threat exists, uh, that should never be a pop-up threat, uh, a huge bunch of people coming of our ship, yeah, but we yeah. should, we should know about that well in advance. Right.
0: If we were off the coast of Southern Florida and, suddenly the conch republic or whatever <laughs> comes out after us, then <laughs> we, yeah. we've, we've failed ourselves. So, all right, Dad, well, let's give everybody an extreme close-up of our uh, beautiful faces here. All right. And we will zoom up to the top, and we might be quiet a little bit. We're going to scan through and uh, see how it's going. And, and now you can see my hair that's growing out that I desperately need a haircut. All right, so I got thumbs up on the uh, audio, so that's good. Oh, there's Rhett. Yeah, I need to talk to him about Uh, Rhett, give me a shout, dude, when you get a chance. We need to talk about uh, if you're still connected to VTs. We need a show on on that. Everybody is asking who's heading to flight school.
1: There's the one from Jason that I think I saw. Go ahead and
0: start reading while I'm looking at the other.
1: Jason talks about, are all adversary pilots top gun grads? Is there a specialized curriculum for adversary pilots versus fleet pilots? And that's a great question. Uh, so to the first part, no, not all adversary uh, pilots are top gun grads, but our highest level of adversary are top gun grads to the adversary program at Top Gun, which is different than what Jello went through. Jello went through the blue program, which is the longer and more uh, it, it's a more in- depth syllabus on on doing a blue Air, right. but um, in fact, do you do part of that red air syllabus as part of it? So when you graduate
0: with a blue patch, we talk about this on episode seven with Grand. You uh, have Grand was the
1: department head of mine. Uh, wait, great, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Our, our training officer. Excuse me, training officer. Yeah.
0: Of do you yeah. hear he's going to take VFA 125? Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Dude's just going up and up. Yeah. Um, you, you end up, with a Top Gun patch with a basic adversary qualification, and then you just have to do a couple upgrade flights to get the rest of it.
1: Yeah. I flew adversary missions, uh, uh, totally non-qualified as a Top Gun adversary, but qualified through the internal process. Right. So it is different. And w- we had, and we and we still do in our blue, in our fleet syllabus, train to a red air, uh, you know, some red air proficiency, because, you know, unfortunately we have to provide a lot of our internal red air, and we want to do that professionally and give our – guys the best training we can so we, sure. we train to it even in the fleet we're trying to get away from it as much as we can because our airplanes need uh, you know a little bit of rest and what, what flying they do needs to be on our blue side not the all red right. side for sure good question though
0: all right i'll ask you this one from bruce uh, hey guys always wondered do you have de-ice anti-ice on the f-18 I never see any boots or hot strips. How do you guys fly in icing?
1: This is the coolest answer ever. We go faster. Cool. I like that. That's because that's what we do. Because with airplanes we fly now, have all that stuff. That's right. It's not cool. <laughs> uh, what we do, well, first of all, I try to avoid it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the first thing. No airplane wants to be, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't ever want to be in icing. Even the airplanes that have, are designed to be able to fly in it. We just fly faster. And that is simply, the. we have an engine anti-ice switch. Correct. Uh, and But after that, it's uh, fly faster and, and have the friction of the uh, air over the jet and keep it warm enough to yep. prevent ice.
0: So uh, anti-ice, no de-ice, and you try to avoid it. Yep. All right. Uh, typically, how many hours, this is from Neil Braden, how many hours needed in the F-18 before heading out on your first carrier landing training? So this one could be for you.
1: Well, I came right out of the FRS, and I was, out on cruise within 60 well, days. Well, so I
0: think what he's asking is how many hours in the F-18 before heading out on your first carrier landing. Oh, your landing. first carrier. Oh, so right, this would yeah. be in the FRS. Yeah,
1: so we do that at the end of the syllabus. But uh, it's not
0: based on hours. It's based on progressing through the syllabus, right?
1: It is, and I can't remember. Sorry if there's even a technical. There may be a technical like a s- requirement. I think it's minimum hours, hours yeah. like 50 or something. But the bottom line, is, it's always at the end of the syllabus. Um, uh, and, um, so at that point you have, I don't know, a hundred hours or so you've already, as a naval aviator, you've done daytime landings in nowadays a T-45, right. I did an A-4. Did you have A-4? A-4, we, yeah. yeah. So we did our day work in the A-4, uh, A-4, T-A-4.
0: T-A-4, J-Skyhawk.
1: skyhawk Uh, now it's a T 45 but in the fleet, we do at the end of their FRS tour about a hundred hours. They've been there for probably six to nine months, depending on delays, and they're landing at the first time at night. Pretty cool. Awful. And it was, uh, it's one of the you know, greatest things as an instructor, as an uh, as a FRS LSO. Uh, it's really cool to take guys to the to the, oh, yeah, the first time. Oh, yeah,
0: no doubt, for sure. All right, um, so Milan asks, do most operational jets with two seats have dual controls? We covered that earlier, so if you weren't here for that or you probably asked it before and we just hadn't gotten to it yet, then you can go back and listen to that. But uh, the answer is
1: yes, they do have dual – we can stick a stick on it. But
0: not – right. But, well, actually, do most operational jets – uh, so, no, most training jets will, but most operations yeah, no, Yeah, be, they don't.
1: Yeah, they do mo- not. Well, not.
0: That's right. Yeah. All right, let's see. When you first become a naval fighter pilot, what do you fly to train to become one, and do you guys f- remember your first F-18 flight? How was it? Oh, so yeah. what's, what's these days, what does a student go from 0 to 60 in as far as jets go leading up to an F-18? Do you know?
1: Uh, well, it's going to be the T-6 Texan for a right. primary and a turboprop mm-hmm. airplane. If they select jets, they're going to go from there to the T-45. It's that simple. Yep. We'll do an intermediate and advanced syllabus. It takes should take about two years to get them through all of that. Uh, you know, beginning, intermediate, and advanced jet training. Then they go to the FRS for the F eighteen. That's another six to nine, closer to nine months, really, mm-hmm. uh, of training. And then you're finally in the fleet. Do I remember my first F eighteen flight? I do, but I have a better memory of my first solo because it was in a an enhanced performance. We uh, we the bigger engines, bigger engines, mm-hmm. and it was the air show bird. It was completely clean.
0: Oh, no pylons, no drop tanks. It.
1: It just about scared me. I, I, I went down in our Owens Valley there where we trained 500 feet, stood it on its tail, and the top of the area I think it was 28,000 feet, mm-hmm. right? And it seemed like it was only 20 seconds before I had – besides, I was too scared anyway at that point. It was like riding <laughs> a rocket ship. <laughs> now, it, it, that was it. That was my first solo. Yeah. I remember very distinctly when I put the thing in burner that I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was very very uh, cool. I Totally cool. remember. it. I remember yeah. my first time over the boat like it was yesterday. Oh yeah. Yeah. So first time great.
0: in A4, I certainly do. Yeah. I remember my first two seat flight at VMFAT 101 at then Marine Corps Air Station El Toro because it was was with the XO which was the Navy senior guy. Yeah. Uh, Gutenberger was his name who had promoted me a few days before and it was in a jet that because it had so much trouble, they had painted the word Christine <laughs> up on the tail, which if you remember the show, I don't remember the name of the movie. Was that the movie Christine? Yeah. But it was like, like some haunted car. Yeah. And so they did, they painted Christine on the tail. And this was out at the depot actually recently, and it was it, we did we had an emergency on our first flight, and of course I had him there to help me handle it. I think the APU or something. So you that had called. the XO. The AM, I had I, mean.
1: I had the FRS's one and only um, at the time. Uh, it came from Tomcat's dual anchor Rio.
0: On and your first flight
1: and my first flight, he was my on wing. So my first four flights were with, so I actually signed for the jet because he couldn't. Wow! And uh, so he was allowed to take uh, guys up, but I flew with a two anchor guy right from the get go. Great guy.
0: All but, right, uh, see so, you got a yeah. love for those guys. Mm-hmm. All right, who else we got here? Gavin Duff. You know no, yeah. I mean? hey. <laughs> hey, Gavin. All right, Ha-ha, fly faster.
1: Hey, Gavin. Congrats, man, on everything. You yeah, doing, what the, what's his?
0: He's well, anyway. Oh, we'll, he's we'll doing get, fantastic. Deal. I know he is. For everyone listening, keep scumbag.
1: that name in in uh, in your memory because right. one day CNO. We'll have
0: him on here as air boss. Yeah. Yeah. How often are Hornets washed, CO?
1: Uh, every seven seven days is uh, by instruction. There you
0: go. This was from Mike Norman. I see some covered in grime and some really clean. Care to keep elaborating?
1: <laughs> well, They do get dirty. Uh, they are supposed to be washed every seven days. Uh, but even a- if it's
0: washed on Monday by Tuesday or Wednesday on the ship,
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. it
0: gets pretty grimy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: that's because people in inexplicably put their hands on it with grease on their hands yeah, plus the troubleshooters are touching it as it gets on the greasy blown across stuff's the, blown yeah. around yeah. but for the most part we get out there with that bubbly stuff and mm-hmm. try to clean Even the Every seven on days. off days we get yeah. out there and, and do that so yep seven days as part of what as corrosion? long as the
1: ship can give us the water and all that kind of stuff <laughs> but yes the
0: corrosion prevention stuff yeah. okay well that is let's see what's oh so they keep coming all right steven yours is going to be the last we're down to just about five minutes left uh, all right, Rob, you might be the last, but after you, Rob, that's it. What's the heaviest weapons load you have flown with?
1: Uh, I, don't, I don't think
0: I have an answer for this.
1: The load, I don't know. The largest weapon I ever carried was the Walleye Ertl.
0: Yeah, so the Walleye, too. I was going to say the same thing. That thing weighed like 2,600 Standard pounds.
1: Standard in a range that only is what that yeah, yeah. Ertl stands for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked like a Volkswagen bug. It was uh, strapped to it my F-18C. Yeah, it was a, a really huge, large... Uh, TV guy. Very cool. Dropped yeah. it up in the Utah Range up in uh, Utah. Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, very memorable because it's such a huge weapon. Yeah,
0: I remember flying one of those in Puerto Rico before Roosevelt Roads closed yeah. and we were going to employ it and something happened we couldn't. And other than that, I it's a shame. I don't sit here and say, oh, I had two AMRAM, two AM9, bunch of these, bunch of those. I do remember flying next to a VFA-94 jet. I can't remember who was flying it. And I have a picture of it just loaded with MERS full of, of 500 pounders. And yeah. I think we went up to Fallon and dropped them, but it might it might have been rusty. But I, I don't remember Harm
1: and Jaisal are the other uh, not J-Sau, but Harm. Uh, big kind of a big missile. Yeah, thing. 800 uh, pound
0: missile, 100 pound. Uh, I want to say. Yeah, it's pretty large on the airplane, and mm-hmm.
1: yeah, but yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing like the old glory days uh, with the A6 with the, you know, a rack of 12. <laughs> You know, 500 pounds on each, you know, each multiple ejection rack. And and you drop
0: them and you leap up because you're so light suddenly. That's right. All right. Last question from Rob. Have either of you flown below sea level? No. So, well, I want to correct you. Have you ever landed at El Centro? Oh,
1: is that below sea level?
0: Minus 43 feet.
1: Really? I guess. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I stand correct. I sit corrected <laughs> quite a bit, because I did a lot of deaths down there. there I don't go. remember that being minus uh, yeah. 40 uh, yep. yeah, field yep. elevation. I you know, am
0: fairly level. confident in that. I'm going to stick to my guns on that. Okay. We also do fly over Death Valley, Rob.
1: But never that low. But we're
0: not supposed to be that low. Now, if you're flying over that particular camp where people prefer to bathe with less than all their clothes on, then some people have been accused of going lower. But no, yeah. we uh, over Death Valley, we're supposed to stay a little Any higher. Any
1: national park, we have to be 3,000 feet or above. That's right. So
0: um but landing at el centro which is below sea level yes
1: we have yeah excellent
0: all right good day from australia well good day mark and i that love
1: australia i've been there six times thanks to the navy i don't love like being it. off the coast of it that's the one thing oh my goodness brisbane once said the crocodile hunter before the stingray got him that was sad oh, did wow. a zoo there did sydney twice perth three times and uh yeah love australia
0: excellent all right. Well, Doug, we are going to wrap it up. We're just about out of time. I want to come. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Well, thanks, Jella. And so before we wrap it up, cause I want to, I'm kind of, I, you know, uh, you, you started off with a podcast and now you're doing these live stuff. So how are things going?
0: Oh well, thank you for asking. Uh, wow, it's almost like you were thinking ahead for that. Uh, they're they're <laughs> they're going well. Thank you. Um, we are we're doing great. We just launched today our merchandise store. So for anyone who's wanting some cool fighter pilot podcast logos or swag or coffee mugs or mouse pads or whatever, it's on our Cafe Press site. So you can find that on Facebook and Patreon, uh, Twitter. We also announced it on. Gosh, I don't know where else, but uh, a newsletter. That's the other one I was thinking of. So we're doing that. And, you know, I've always said doing this isn't about the money, but enough people came up and said, hey, would you put together some T-shirts and stuff? We'd like to have them. So we did. And right now we have some introductory pricing. So we get a, a buck maybe or two from each shirt. Um, cafe press keeps the rest because they have to make these one at a time so it's not a huge money-making deal but that's not the point people want to show our colors at an air show or wherever and so now you have that opportunity and so then well, we did- i
1: gotta say hey i don't get paid a dime for being here but i'm glad to be here thank you and b uh i'm not really on social media i have none of those things i have a facebook account but i people can find me but i honestly i don't even go there anymore so uh-huh. Uh, but that's great stuff. Well, you're not
0: getting paid, but I will give you. And I said it wrong with sunshine, by the way. I didn't. I said patch. I meant to say a sticker. Oh, so here's here's a that. cool fighter pilot podcast sticker.
1: Oh, holy cow, Joe! Thanks. And
0: and a that's a pretty cool a, a magnet. Right I better. Well, yeah. he is good looking. I think. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: and a magnet as well for your beer keg or, uh, or fridge. I mean, or whatever you got. Awesome. Uh, but yes, you're not getting paid. That's true. <laughs> and I didn't even buy you lunch before this. That's awful. I should have no, no, done it's, that. No, no, it's awesome. But, Glad to be here. Uh, and and no. I think
1: what you're doing here for. Um, You know, I know it's not about, uh, you know, for – Jello and I have talked about this. You know, in our line of business, it's completely normal to get heckled severely for doing something like this. uh, And we all applaud that, actually. We're glad. And and, uh, Jello can take it. Um, But it's not about that. It's really about, you know, when I was a kid, even though I'm a third-generation naval aviator, all I wanted to do was fly. And I see from the folks up there, uh, you know, really – I would have been a kid glued to this thing. And I'm glad you're out there inspiring the next generation of – naval aviators, because we need good pilots out there. And i sure. tell you, I know, Jelly, you echo the same thing. Yeah, fly for the airlines now. That's great. I wouldn't have done it any differently. My time in the Navy was such a blessing, and, and the people I worked for, uh, like I said, if that's Diddle Duff up there, uh, one of the best people you're going to meet, and he's just one of, of, of hundreds. hundreds we could all yeah. point to. Uh, yeah. And so... It's uh, It's been fantastic, and I'm glad you're doing this, and it's great for naval aviation, and uh, I hope the audience enjoys it. So uh,
0: they yeah. seem to. I get emails all the time from people who thank me for doing it. I received one today from a gentleman who flew F-4s in Vietnam, and he said, I listened to it, my wife listened to it, thank you for what you're doing. And the air boss on the last episode yeah. at the yeah. end I said, Jello, thanks for what you're doing for naval aviation. And it's kind of silly, but I get a little bit just warmed by that because I enjoy doing it. There's people out there that love it. It's, it's the folks that wish they did what we do, And when I hear from them, I just dig it. And then the people who want to do what we do, they reach out also, which is why I was talking to Ham earlier about I need to get someone on here who has been an instructor at a VT squadron recently to to service that group. But I like it, and it's not about the money. It's about serving. A little bit helps because it does take some time, but I enjoy doing it, and it sounds like everybody likes it. So thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. All right. And uh, we will see everybody next time. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, any parting shots?
1: No, thanks for tuning in, all, and I hope uh, you continue to watch Jello and the stuff that he's doing here. It's great work. Excellent.
0: All right, well, let's get out of here. Now, this is always, again, the awkward part. I should let you, uh, you want to end it? It's fun. All you got to do is hit end.
1: All right, I'm going to hit end. Okay. Thanks, everybody. See ya.
0: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> was like, we were, oh, like, right at like... one hour. It was great. It was great. That was great. Oh, we're still recording. All right, goodbye, everybody.